This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. Unless you're of the real short variety. Um, before we get started, I wanted to make a let you guys know that uh, Shannon and I are taking a couple of weeks of vacation over the next couple. Uh, yeah, next couple of weeks. Thank you. And just to give you guys an idea, I, I am so grateful for the Savior uh, who watches over this flock. You are in good hands. There are other elders here and other people who can take care of you. I say that to say there are very few things that I consider to be an emergency. Your death, it's not an emergency. (laughs) Family problems, not an emergency. You are still in the loving hands of your Father. So please, uh, if you wouldn't mind, call the elders or something if you have any issues. Uh, I have very limited cell service anyway. Thank you for your... Yeah, my, yeah, we might come back. We're not sure. We haven't decided yet. Oh, I might drop my phone in the river. Yes, that is true. So anyway, we'll be gone for a couple weeks. Um, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, as Gary said earlier, uh, we look to your word once again to see the word And we pray, Lord, that he is who you would magnify, that in our hearts you would show him as powerful and gracious and holy. Father, it is in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. I forgot the good morning part. Morning. We're going to be in uh, Psalm 129 this morning as we continue our study in the Psalms of Ascent. If you want to start heading there in your Bible, Psalm 129. Psalm 129 is one of the most vivid passages in all of Scripture. Partly because it speaks to a common pursuit of every person. You see, whether you're Christian or not, you are united to everyone who has ever lived in a pursuit of escaping or at least trying to divert the discomfort of this life. In fact, at the core of every religion that has ever existed, and I would include atheism in that group, at the core of every religion that's ever existed is a claim that they have the solution to this pursuit of making life better, of easing Discomfort and the the simple fact that 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 religions all say they have that solution it reveals two things. First, rich or poor, young or old, male or female, everyone recognizes at some point in their life that something's not right. That there must be something better in this life. That's the first thing that reveals. The second thing. And I would say more importantly, that every religion claiming to have this answer to this universal pursuit reveals, is it reveals that people recognize their need for help. It reveals that we know our affliction and our suffering and our heartache are outside of our control. And therefore, we need someone outside of ourselves to help fix it. 
In other words, religions exist because people recognize, at least to some extent, that we need divine help to escape the, the discomfort of this life. But here's the problem. Every other religion outside of Christianity, every single other religion that has ever existed outside of Christianity, while they recognize mankind's need for help, their solutions are inherently flawed. Because the only solution every other religion besides Christianity has to offer is to do something. Do these rituals and your life will go better. Pray in this location and your pleas will be heard. Do these acts of service and your life will have meaning. In other words, everyone who flocks to these religions looking for help from the affliction of their lives are met with someone telling them to fix themselves. It's like, haven't you already tried that? Like, isn't that why you've gone to a religion is because whatever you were trying to do didn't work? Well, Christian or not, I'm here this morning to show you that Psalm 129 says we serve a God who understands our weaknesses. He understands our, our, our inabilities. He hears our cries and he doesn't leave us to solve it on our own. No, using some of the most vivid imagery in all of Scripture, Psalm 129 is going to tell us this morning that we serve a God who rescues. We serve a God who rescues. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verses 1 through 3, where the psalmist tells us that our God rescues people who are deeply afflicted. Our God rescues people who are deeply afflicted. Afflicted. He says, beginning in verse 1, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now the very first thing I need to ask you guys to do is to let your emotions take over. When you read a psalm like this, you need to let your emotions take over so you can feel what the psalmist is saying as much as you hear him. The psalmist begins by looking into the past and saying, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. But then to amplify what he's saying, he calls his first readers to join in. He, he wants their camaraderie. He wants them to be with him. He wants this cry to be louder he wants their agreement. He wants them to know this psalm isn't just about him. So I want you to see three things about this affliction the psalmist remembers. Three things. First, what would it mean for you to have been afflicted since your youth? Would that be 10 years? 50 years? A hundred years? I don't know, some of you are pretty old. <laughs> of affliction. How long would that mean you'd been actively afflicted? And maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Maybe you don't have to imagine. Maybe the right question is, what has it been like to be afflicted since your youth? At least for a long time. What's it like to endure that kind of misery that provokes 
that kind of physical or emotional numbness. Because that's the only way you can deal with it. Secondly, notice at the end of verse 2 that it's not just the years of affliction, but it's also years of resisting the temptation to give in to that affliction. He says, yet they have not prevailed against me in the second half of verse 2. It's the, it's the sometimes physically, but always emotionally draining effort to resist that urge to just give up. Third, let the depth of that affliction in verse 3 weigh on you. He says, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. Now, the psalmist could be referring to the Egyptian slavery that they were in. He could be referring to the Babylonians, or he could be referring to some other event. But whatever he was remembering, whatever event it was, he wants you to hear the crack of the whip. He wants you to feel the hot breath of the irritated grunts of the beasts being commanded to pull. He wants you to feel the rusty blade of the plow as it tears through your back as if it's earth. Catching on something and pulling. Catching on something and pulling. And then he wants you to hear. Can you, can you, can you hear in the distance? The plow is turning around for another pass. The furrows in your back are long. At least longer than you were prepared to endure and still growing. Let me ask you the question that the psalmist obviously wants every, all of his readers to ask. What affliction in your life has drugged that plow across your back? Metaphorically speaking. What affliction has made those furrows long in your life? Maybe for you it's something medical. A sickness, a disease, an injury, something that won't go away. You've gone to doctors, you've taken medication, you've tried all kinds of therapy, even the weird ones. It still won't go away. Maybe your affliction is something more emotional. Someone you care for seems to just enjoy hurting you insulting you, pushing you away, driving a wedge in between you. And as hard as you try, their animosity just gets worse. And all you want is peace because you love them. Maybe your affliction is, is loneliness or death or shame or grief. Something is always dragging you down inside. And I don't want to skip over the the idea that maybe your affliction is something more literal. Maybe, maybe you've been subject to, to slander or harassment or even real physical abuse. I'd say if you still are, please reach out to someone. There's plenty of people in here who would love to help. But whatever your affliction has been, the psalmist wants us to join him in acknowledging the pain and the grief 
that this life so often has to offer. So what's your contribution to to the first three verses of Psalm 129? What affliction, what, what heartache do you desperately want to be rid of? Because listen, ours is a God who rescues. He rescues people who are greatly afflicted. But how does he do that, you ask? How does he rescue those people? Well, in verse 4, the psalmist says, Our God rescues the afflicted by cutting the cords of the wicked. He says, Our God rescues those afflicted by cutting the cords of the wicked. He says, The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So, sticking with the farming imagery, the psalmist is saying that the Lord has, has cut the reins from the plow that were furrowing his back, disabling his enemy's ability to injure him any further. Again, you could be referencing some real escape from Egypt or, or, or Babylon, but the, the psalmist uses this metaphorical imagery because the, the event is not the focus. The freedom is. The focus is the freedom, the release, the the surreal understanding that he's not at the mercy of his enemies anymore. Now, I know that this can be a little difficult for us as Americans to to, to wrap our hands around because our lives are so comfortable and and well-insured and and there there sometimes can be a a disability for us to, to reckon with somebody who has actually been in bondage. But it doesn't have to be literal bondage. I mean, think about your answers to the questions or the comments that I just made a few minutes ago. How would you feel if God released you from those afflictions? What if the next doctor you went to see said, Yep, I know what the problem is with you and I can fix it. You'll be good as new. What if that person who was constantly pushing you away restored and your relationship flourished? What if that person who's been attacking you for some reason was removed from your life and you didn't have to deal with them anymore? Maybe you've had the experience of being released from from this affliction. Either way, what would that feel like if the pain this life was offering you at that time was relieved, even if it was just for a moment? What if joy and peace and security and comfort were what were on your horizon? instead of pain and heartache and grief. Because the psalmist says that our God rescues the afflicted by cutting the cords of the wicked. But that's the second half of verse 4. What about the first half of verse 4? That part about the Lord being righteous. What does that have to do with cutting the cords of the wicked? I mean, that's something we, sure, we can read past that really easily. I mean, obviously, the Lord is righteous. Yeah, duh, I've heard that like a million times. Keep going. But of all the things, if you think about it, of all the words the psalmist could have said, why did he say that? I mean, he could have said the Lord is gracious or merciful or forgiving, so he cut the cords of the wicked, but that's not what he said. So of all the things the psalmist could have said, why did he say it that way? What does the Lord's righteousness have to do with him cutting the cords of the wicked? Well, the psalmist is saying 
because the Lord is righteous, he can't allow injustice to prevail. The Lord can't allow the wicked to afflict the righteous indefinitely and still be just. I mean, that's obvious. The Lord can't remain just if he allows the the righteous to be afflicted by the wicked. That can't happen. So the the psalmist says in verse 4, the Lord is righteous. That's a fact. Therefore, he cut the cords the wicked were using to afflict the righteous. That's why he says that. But that brings up a problem for you and I. Judging by some of your faces, I think you're kind of on track. You know what that problem is. See, the problem is we're not righteous. If you don't believe me, ask your spouse. Or your kids. The Bible says very clearly, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Which means, listen, this is important. It would actually be unjust for God to save the unrighteous from the consequences of their own sin. It would be unjust for God to save or to rescue someone from the consequences of their own sin. Like, like what if right after reading the guilty verdict for a murder suspect in a courtroom, a judge said, hey, thanks for stopping by, Mr. or Miss Murderer. It's good to see you. You're free to go. That would be unjust. That that person didn't face any consequences. The Lord would be just as unjust if he rescued the unrighteous. So where does that leave us? What do we do with that? When when we seem to be eliminated from the, the cutting of the cords. Well, I would propose this to you. What if this psalm isn't about us? What if we're not always the center of attention? What if everything in the Bible isn't about me? What if this psalm is about someone else? What if this psalm is about the affliction someone else endured from his youth? What if this psalm is about the mangled back of someone else? And listen, because this is very important... What if we're the afflictors? What if we're the ones running the plow? Well, brothers and sisters, that's exactly what this psalm is about. You see, just a handful of pages to your right in Isaiah chapter 50, beginning in verse 6, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a servant who would come and one day say, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And a couple of chapters after that, speaking of that same servant, Isaiah said in chapter 52, beginning in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And sure enough, several hundred years later, this servant came and he was perfectly righteous. He did everything right. He never sinned once. Yet he was despised and afflicted from his youth. He was bound and abused, and the furrows on his back were dug deep by the end of a whip. Until finally, with his back reduced to shreds, he was hung on a cross to die. To die for the very people who were afflicting him. To die for people like you and I. The very people whose sin held him to that cross. But just as the psalm says, the Lord is righteous. He couldn't let that stand. He couldn't allow the righteous to be afflicted by the wicked. So what did the Lord do? He cut the cords the wicked used to plow Jesus into the grave. He cut the cords used to, to hold that stone in place. And he brought Jesus out of that grave three days later, alive, free from affliction. Maybe you're thinking, that's great for Jesus, but what about me? I mean, have you read verses 5 through 8? It doesn't go well. He says in verse 5, May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. If that doesn't terrify you, you need to spend some time contemplating your own sin. That is what we deserve. That needs to mean something. That needs to afflict us. If this psalm isn't about me, if this psalm isn't about us, If I am the afflictor in this psalm, I don't want verses 5 through 8 to be my end. But here's the thing, brothers and sisters, the Lord made a way for this psalm to be about us. He said, listen, all you need to do is believe that you're a sinner. Believe that you need help. And I'll credit you Jesus' perfect life and call you righteous too. Meaning, listen, if you do believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord says you switch places in this psalm. It's true. You move from the one holding on to the cords of the plow to the one for whom the cords were cut. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you move from the wicked afflictor to the rescued righteous. By doing nothing... Nothing. It's only possible because Christ took your place as an enemy of God. 
Christ put himself into verses 5 through 8 for us. Verse 5, Jesus was put to shame so we wouldn't have to be. Verse 6 and 7, Jesus was regarded as useless and unworthy so we wouldn't have to be. And verse 8, Jesus was the one who passers-by heaped curses on and disregarded and ridiculed so we wouldn't have to be, so we could be blessed. So listen, when someone comes to Christianity, when someone believes in Jesus Christ, unlike every other religion in the history of the world, they're not told to do something. They're not told to pray in this place or, or perform these rituals. No, we serve a God who rescues the righteous. And when we were found to be unrighteous, that same God stepped in and made us righteous through the life of Jesus Christ. So when you come to Jesus, you're not told to do, you're told to simply believe. Just believe that's true. You switch places in this psalm. When you believe, when you believe that Jesus is your only hope for rescue from this world, you join Him as one of the rescued righteous, as one for whom the cords of the wicked have been cut. However, maybe you're thinking, I do believe that. I do believe in Jesus Christ. I do believe that I am righteous because of His perfect life being credited to me. I believe that I'm righteous because my sin was taken on Him at the cross and paid for completely. I believe that. But if my life right now is what you call rescue... I don't think that word means what you think it means. That's a great point. There is a lot of pain in this world. If, if we have been rescued, then, then, then how do we answer for all of the affliction that remains? The first answer is this. We have been rescued from our greatest affliction. Because our greatest affliction was our own sin. Now I know our sin doesn't often feel like our greatest affliction, but that's because we've developed this kind of Stockholm Syndrome with our own sin. We feel comfortable with it. We've even grown to kind of like it. When in fact it was our sin to which we were enslaved. It was our sin that abused us. It was our sin that plowed our backs. From sin was the rescue we needed most. And from sin was the rescue we received. That's the first reason. Because a righteous God rescued unrighteous people from their affliction, from their own sin. That's the, the first answer to this dilemma of why affliction remains. We have been rescued from our greatest affliction. And that rescue ensures that one day we will be removed from this affliction completely and put into the loving embrace of our, of our Lord and Savior. But still, that doesn't mean we're not still afflicted. What about now? How do we endure the affliction now until then? Well, I think the best thing that we can do is see if the Apostle Paul has an answer to that question. He's got a unique perspective on affliction. Beatings, whippings, shipwrecks, imprisonment. So what does Paul have to say 
about enduring affliction today? Well, in 2 Corinthians, the bottom line is, Paul says that we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart even though we are still afflicted because through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, now all of our affliction has purpose. Now all of our affliction has purpose. In other words, we do not lose heart because we serve a God who rescues people, rescues people who are afflicted by cutting the cords of meaningless affliction. By cutting the cords of meaningless affliction. Let me explain. In the fourth chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us not to lose heart by explaining that our affliction now has purpose. And I could go on for two or three hours on the purposes of affliction, but let me just give you two that Paul says. Two purposes. First, at the beginning of 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, he explains that we carry this message of rescue around in, in fragile jars of clay. Jars that can be afflicted and cracked and broken, but for a reason, he says. He says, we carry this message of rescue around in bodies that can be afflicted so that we can display the surpassing power of God. So we can display the surpassing power of God, meaning we carry this message of affliction around in afflictable bodies. So when others see that we are afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, when they see that we're struck down but not destroyed, they'll see the surpassing power of God in that weak vessel. In other words, after the world throws everything it has at us, others will see the surpassing power of God when we still do not lose heart. That's the first reason Paul says we do not lose heart, because we are, are displaying the surpassing power of God. That leads to the second purpose of our affliction I want to share with you. It's this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. He says, so we do not lose heart, even though our outer self is wasting away. So we do not lose heart, he says. Why? Why don't we lose heart even though our outer self is wasting away? Well, verse 17, 4. I've taught you this before. Put the word because in there. We do not lose heart because this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now let's just get offended for a second. How can Paul call our affliction, much less his, light and momentary? He doesn't. He does not say that our affliction is light and momentary. He says it's light and momentary compared to what's coming. So listen, you've got to understand who's saying this. You've got to understand the man whose back was scarred beyond recognition, who was left in ditches for dead who was shipwrecked and jailed. you got to understand who's saying this because when someone like Paul says that, it doesn't minimize the affliction. It amplifies the glory. It amplifies the glory. How does he know what's coming? Well, simply because 2 Corinthians 12 tells us God showed him. What did God show him? Well, verse 17, he saw the weight of glory that makes even terrible affliction seem light. 
And he saw the eternalness of glory that makes even lifelong affliction seem momentary. Brothers and sisters, this is what the world does not want you to see. This world wants you to lose heart. This world wants you to look at that plow and despair. I have no hope. I'm just going to give up. The world wants, the world says, where's this glory you're talking about? You're a fool if you think this life has any meaning. Show me this glory. Show me this reason. Prove it to me, they say. To which Paul replies in verse 18, we look to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are temporary, this affliction. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So what is unseen? What is unseen, brothers and sisters? What's unseen right now is that little connection that Paul makes between the coming glory and our present affliction. I don't want you to miss this connection. Don't miss that one little verb phrase in the middle of verse 17 that gives us the purpose we need to endure, the purpose we need to not lose heart. Paul says in the middle of verse 17, this light, momentary affliction, your pain, that is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let that sink in. Let me close with this. When it feels like the world is pulling the plow of affliction across your back. When that plow of heartache and loss and grief and pain is being raked across your heart. Do not lose heart, dear saint. Because you serve a God who rescues the afflicted by cutting the cords of sin and death. And listen, who rescues the afflicted by cutting the cords of meaningless affliction. Jesus Christ has given every moment of your affliction meaning. Whether it's physical or psychological, whether it's death or dismemberment, whether it's hatred or harassment, because of Jesus Christ, every moment of your affliction, it's producing it's generating, it's building, it's bringing about a spectacularly unique glory for you when you get to heaven. Why? Why is it doing that? Because God is using us to show His power. God is using us to show His power through our affliction. He says, here, you let me show my power through you, I'll give you the strength to do that, but you let me show my power through you, and I'll create glory for you over here. All of your affliction. You show the world that I am better and bigger and stronger than your affliction, and I'll have glory for you waiting. Built on that. Prepared by that. So, saint... What plow is being raked across your back this morning? Is it sickness? Is it disease? Is it injury? Don't lose heart. Glory is being prepared for you because of that. Are you being hated or insulted or threatened or driven away by ones you love? Don't lose heart, Christian. Glory is being prepared for you as you display the surpassing power of God in that affliction. 
Are you being isolated? Are the ones you love dying around you? Are you being grieved by the overwhelming wickedness that is in this world? Don't lose heart. Dear brother and sister, don't lose heart because your God who rescues the afflicted, he's preparing a special glory for you because of that affliction. A glory whose eternal weight will make all your afflictions seem light and momentary in comparison as you allow him to show his surpassing power when this world sees you cannot be broken. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bolster our hearts, that you would build up our endurance. I pray, Lord, that you would make us broken, duct-taped, messed-up, shattered jars so that the world can see your power and not ours. Father, give us the ability as much as we can to lean into that affliction to follow our Savior down that path of heartache, if for nothing else than to show how much you matter, how gracious you are, how merciful you are, that, that even like our brother Job, through the tears, we can still praise you. Father, I know that you can do this because you've promised you would, and I know that we can, we can do this because it is ours, in Jesus Christ. You have called us and you are building us up and growing us and empowering us to walk in his, his footsteps. And Father, I pray that you would do this for us in his name. Amen.